0: Thank you for coming to church today. Those of you online, thank you for being here. I see people here who have not been able to come because of just physical issues and COVID issues over the year, last couple of years. It's great to see you here, and we're glad you're all here. We're in the middle of a study on the fruit of the Spirit that's in Galatians. I'm gonna read Galatians. You don't need to turn there. We're gonna be looking at some other uh, passages as well. But Galatians... Chapter five, verse 22 says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, nine things. Wow, if we could just do a couple of those, it'd be great. Against such things, there is no law. So last week we talked about love. Today we're gonna talk about joy and peace and we're gonna take two over the next few weeks. Francois is gonna be helping me, Matthew's gonna be helping me because Elizabeth and I will be leaving after next week to Asia, and we'll talk about more of that in a few, or next week we'll talk about more of that. So we talked about love, now it's joy and peace. This summer, we were in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the very first public sermon that we have a record of of Jesus speaking to his disciples. The last sermon, Jesus His disciples was in the upper room on the night before He was betrayed, or the night He was betrayed, the day before, the night before He actually was crucified. And in that, He talked about love, joy, and peace in John chapter 15 and John chapter 14. And I'd like to just read it for a moment. John chapter 15 verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me so I loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love." And this is what we talked about last week, about love and the love, loving God, loving others, understanding our own self-understanding as well. Very important thing, kind of the upward, the outward, and the inward. And we talked about that last week, but he goes on, and discusses about joy. He says in verse 11, the very next verse, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now it's interesting, this is hours and maybe minutes before he's about to be betrayed, hours before all those trials and a half a day before he's gonna be crucified. And Jesus knows all this. We don't know it in the storyline yet. The disciples don't know it, but he knows it. He knows all this is happening, and he says, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We learn something here about joy, that joy is not totally up to circumstances, is it? But he's saying, I have a full heart of joy, and he's about to die in a few hours and then also in this sermon, a few verses before, in verse uh, chapter 14, verse 27, he talks about the third one, which we'll get to a little later this morning, about peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So today we're gonna look at joy and peace. What is joy? Joy can be defined about a lot of things. Um, It's not happiness. There's happiness in joy, there's happiness that's not always with joy. Joy and happiness can be connected, they also are not sometimes. An old-fashioned word, because you can't define it by saying it's rejoicing or anything like that, because you can't use the word in the word of definition, but it's gladness not based on circumstances. It's the fact that you have something inherently good happening in your heart and it's not necessarily based on the circumstances of the moment. And that's what joy is. And joy is throughout the Bible. It's one of those themes that's throughout the Bible, either joy or lack of joy. Now, how does this work? Because we go, can anybody experience joy? Can non-believers experience joy? Can atheists believe, uh, experience joy? Do believers experience joy? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. So how does it work? It's very similar to what I I, uh, do a lot of work with non-believers, and I talk about the common good and the greater good, There's a common good and a greater good. Last week I talked to you about how to share with people. One of the ways was to pray for them and say, can I pray for you? It's a great way to open a discussion. Another great way to open a discussion about faith with someone is to go and acknowledge that you disagree with them about the greater good and go, what can we agree on in the common good? There is a common good that we agree on. All of us want good schools for our kids. We want uh, safe streets. We want this, we want that, etc. cetera. That's the common good, whether you're a believer, an atheist, a Muslim, or this or that, you, kind, you want the same thing, that's the common good. We can agree on that and then go, we have a relationship in which we can talk about the greater good that we disagree on. Common good, greater good. With joy, it's very similar. There is a common joy and there is a greater joy. There is a joy that anyone can experience or not experience. And then there is a greater joy that the Bible says believers in Jesus Christ can experience. Can I give you four of these? First, and they're not in any order except the last one. Number one, you can have joy, common joy with your family. Common joy in family. This is important because wives love husbands, husbands love wives, you love your children. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, non-believers love their children. And we need to acknowledge there's joy in that, there's also heartache in that, there's also conflict in that, but there is joy in that. So there is this common joy that comes in our family. But there's also a greater joy that comes in the family of God. You see, we come together, God has called us through his son Jesus to come together. It's called the church. It's called the called out ones. We come together at church. It's called the body of Christ. We come together and we have the opportunity to experience and to give joy that you do not get just by loving someone else. So for instance, when we worship on Sunday mornings like we have just done, a lot of things are going on. One is we're worshiping God. Another is we're praising God. Another is we're hearing the word through music. A lot of things are going on, aren't they? But have you ever noticed there's also the opportunity to have joy? To have joy, it's called the joy of the Lord. You can call it whatever you want. There's a joy that comes because we have assembled together, that is why Unless someone can't come because of illness or health or whatever, that's why I think coming together is so important for the church. There is an embodiment of the body of Christ. There's a coming together that can provide joy. I was talking to a friend earlier this morning, I was praying with him, and he has an elderly father, and his father uh, in another state, uh, called him today and said, I can't go to church. This man has been loving going to church, and he's kind of at the end of his life, and he couldn't go because of some health reasons. And so he said how sad he was that he couldn't go to church because at church, there's a joy that he gets that he doesn't get when he's not in church. That's an amazing thing from a, someone in their mid-90s to say that, that they still get joy after 50 years going to church, or probably 90 years going to church, that they still get joy in being in church. So there is a joy that comes that's the greater good. If you come to church and it's a bad experience, if you're having a bad experience in this church, can I make a suggestion? Go to another church. Or possibly it's your problem too and it's not ours. I don't know, but if it's our problem, go find another church. We're going to do our best to have joyful people here praising Jesus and we do it on sunday mornings we do it in our groups and this is what we want it doesn't always happen we fail at it from time to time but it's important because here's the thing not everybody who came in this room today was joyful there was some sorrow this week i know i'm the pastor i get it people call us people call elizabeth people call our staff there's some sadness in this group well you know what you need to help these people if you're coming with the joy of the lord in your heart you that's why we say greet each other talk to each other pray with each other don't walk out of here without saying hello to somebody and giving them something just a a, a 20 second moment can change somebody's life much less inviting them to lunch or inviting them for coffee tomorrow or something else this is the opportunity that we as the body of christ get to act as the body of christ be joyful, and when the times are come when you are sorrowful, that there are people around that can help you in that, to get through that. I got to tell you, when Elizabeth and I have had our sorrows, we'll talk a little about it later, when we've had our sorrows, there have been people that have come next to us, who have given us an opportunity to re- Rejoice. Rejoice means to have joy again. Doesn't mean you're always joyful, but there's times to rejoice. In other words, bring joy back. Number two, there's joy in celebrations. When someone's child graduates, when someone gets married, Christian, non-Christian, there's joy there, right? Hey, they, they did something. They move forward in some way, and there's joy in those celebrations. That's the common joy. What's the greater joy? We have celebrations in our belief. Let me tell you, Christmas should be a celebration, of all celebrations. Why do we do this? Up on the rooftop experience to celebrate the birth of the king. Easter is a celebration, an amazing one. We celebrate... The death, burial, and resurrection when we do communion. Now, we call it a commemoration, and we're a little quieter, but it is a celebration. All celebrations don't have to be loud and with bangs and and music. It can be a quiet celebration, but we celebrate, and it's the greater joy that comes in celebrating what God has done in your life. We celebrate what someone else has done or maybe you graduated or maybe you got a promotion or whatever else we celebrate, but there are things that God does in your life that we should celebrate. I love when I ask people, how are you doing? And someone tells me, God showed me this or I had a breakthrough in that. That's something to celebrate because that's a joy that should come. You sharing it with me gives you joy and it gives me joy. You sharing it with someone else gives joy to each other number 3 joy in unexpected events joy in unexpected events there are things that happen to you you get a bonus something happens and you go wow this is incredible this morning it's it's funny i i do i'm a person of habit so i go to the beach almost every morning But on Sundays, I definitely always go to the beach early, and do you know what I saw this morning at the beach? The most incredible sunrise. When it rains the next day, and all those clouds, and all that humidity, and all that, you see the most unbelievable sunrises. Now you go, Bill, you've seen thousands of sunrises. What's so beautiful? good about this one. I got to tell you, it's an unexpected joy. I took photographs of it. I got thousands of photographs of sunrises. It's unbelievable because it gives me an unexpected joy. I just, because sometimes you go and the sun's not there, it's cloudy or whatever, it's raining. Unexpected joy. What's the greater good or the greater joy of this? It's faith in Jesus Christ. The unexpected things. You know what the gospel means? Good news, good joy. There's good things that are happening, and it comes in the greater joy of what is unexpected. You do not know when God is going to show up in your life and do something amazing. And can I say that's not totally accurate? He is always showing up in, in your life and doing amazing things. I just took a breath. That's pretty amazing. I'm standing on two feet. That's pretty amazing. We got here safely today. That's very amazing. God is doing amazing things in our lives. And we laugh about that, but there was a gentleman in our congregation, the son of a family, who got T-boned a couple of weeks ago. It's not, you know, T-boned is when you get hit on the side of a car. I mean, it's not a happy situation. And God brought him through it. There was joy there. And then the fourth is this. This is really cool. Joy in the future. There is a common joy of the future. Remember that old play, Annie? You know, little Annie, redhead Annie? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow. Remember that? I'm not going to sing the rest of it. Because I'm not 11 years old and have a great voice. But... There is a positive attitude that you see people have, Christian, -Christian, non-Christian, it's just really cool. I love positive attitudes about tomorrow. Things are good are gonna happen tomorrow. It's incredible. That's the common joy, but what's the greater joy? We do know the future. The whole story of the Bible culminates in the joy of the reality that the Lamb of God, who was slain chose to do it at the beginning of time, did it in the middle of time, and we're going to experience it later on. Isn't that amazing? Have you read the end of the book yet? I mean, it's great. I love reading Genesis and Exodus, but every once in a while, read the last two chapters of of Revelation, you'll see how it all ends, and it's pretty joyful. There is a joy that comes. There is a joy that comes. And God even said, I'm going to send you a deposit on that joy. The deposit is the Holy Spirit. He's called a seal, a pledge, a deposit. And the fruit of the Spirit is a deposit on what's about to happen later on. He wants us to be joyful now because it's going to be a joyful experience later on. And that is the future event and a series of events that are gonna happen. We don't know when the end of the world will happen, but we know what's gonna happen at the end of the world. There's a difference. The people that predict the end of the world, I think it's just foolishness. But we know when the end of the world occurs, what will occur then? And that's the beautiful thing. And that should bring us joy and another word which we're not talking about today, hope. That should bring us incredible hope to the future, and it's an amazing thing. Now, what I want you to do, though, is because I'm, I'm not afraid to go after the hard parts of this story, so I want you to turn into an Old Testament book, if you would. It's on page 739 in the Bible in front of you if you don't have your Bible. It's the book of Habakkuk. Oh, where on earth is that? Habakkuk. Do not be embarrassed if you don't know where it is. It's, it's almost three-quarters of the way through the book, okay, through the Bible. It's not in the middle of the Old Testament. It's the very end. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk. Not Haggai. There's a Haggai. It's Habakkuk. Let me just share. It's chapter 3. The last three verses of the book of Habakkuk are some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. I'm just gonna tell you, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is Bill, you know, you've had a great life. You live in Boca Raton, you have a wonderful wife, great kids, great grandchildren, your parents are still living. Bill, you don't get it. I think I get it. But when you read this, you really, really get it. So the year is about 700 BC before Christ. The world is conflicting between different major empires fighting each other. And the little country of Israel is a pawn in all these battles. Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they're all fighting at this point in time for superiority superiority and world domination. It's before the big Greeks and the Romans took over, but they're still trying to get this. And Israel is in the middle of this fight, not that they could fight, but they are the battlegrounds of these wars and of these fights. And in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk says something that transformed the whole Bible narrative. He said these words, the just shall live by faith. These are the words that the Apostle Paul took in Romans and in Galatians and in Colossians and said, the just shall live by faith. And then in the book of Hebrews, there's the whole faith chapter. It is faith in God. We get it. It comes out of a whole understanding of the Old Testament, but a a specific understanding of Habakkuk. Martin Luther went to Habakkuk in the 1517 when he wrote his 95 Theses and said, The just shall live by faith. It's one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. We're not gonna look at that today. We're gonna look at the last three verses of the book. If you're there, let's look at it. Habakkuk 317. I'm gonna read it as if it were 700 BC and then I'm gonna bring it to 2022. Can I do that? Little paraphrasing here. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Figs were a staple of their foods. The dates and the figs. That was a part of what they ate. And they had that in this very arid and dry land of Israel. And they're not blossoming anymore. Though Publix is empty. and Target, and Costco, and Walmart have no food. Nor fruit beyond the vines. You need to understand back then they did not have good potable water, so they used fruit to drink. It wasn't so they could get drunk, although many did get drunk, it was so they could have sustenance. Though the water system of the world is ruined. The produce of the olives fail. We really don't understand this one. Olives were a commodity back then. When you pressed olive oil, when you hear of oil in the Old Testament, almost 100% of the time, I think there's one or two not, it's talking about olive oil, not petroleum. Petroleum. We think of oil. We think of petroleum. They think of oil. They think of olives. And when you press the olives, you would buy and sell olive oil. It was a commodity. The economy is gone. There's no olive oil. There's no food. There's no water. There's no economy. And the fields yield no fruit. I have a garden in the backyard, and there's nothing in it. I can't buy it. I can't drink it, I can't sell it, I don't even have my own food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You know, I have a barn in the backyard and I have some sheep and I have some goats, may have a bull, they're gone. We ate them up. There's nothing to reproduce. I have no food to buy I have no drink to buy. I have no economy to buy and sell from. I have nothing in my garden. I have nothing in my barns. Is this a real picture here? Do you see it? Verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. How do you get from verse 17 to verse 18. It is the biggest jump in the Bible. You have nothing, yet you rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We live in two kingdoms. The second kingdom, the kingdom of God, as food, drink, economy. It's spiritual, but it's an amazing thing. It's, I can't even speak of this. And then verse 19 gives us the how. It's kind of the what and what you're gonna do about it and then the how. God, the Lord, is my strength. And here's a 700 BC illustration that I gotta get it to the front. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. (laughs) Have you ever been to the Rockies? Or if you've been to Israel, or you've been to somewhere else where those, not the Smoky Mountains, they're way too pastoral. You need these Rocky Mountains like you have in Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and you have in Israel. And then all of a sudden, a thousand feet up, you see a sheep or a deer or a gazelle or an oryx. And you go, what on earth is that? How can they stand on these little bitty crevices? Because they have the feet. They have the hooves. They can do it. And Habakkuk says, God gives us the feet to walk in this life. And because he's given us the feet to walk, we should rejoice because he is the God of our salvation. He doesn't say it's going to be all by the pastures. Psalm 23 he doesn't say it's going to be all by the river. It's not going to be all by the Sea of Galilee. It's not going to be all by the beautiful sunrises in Boca Raton. There are going to be problems that occur that are so heavy that the only thing that's going to sustain you is the feet he has given you. That's it. Not your money, not your food, not your housing, not your, all your wealth, not your barns, not your own gardens. Put any word, the 20th century word you want to put there, it's Gone. Gone but he is the God of our salvation. That's the beautiful thing. My friends, God has called us to have joy. The Bible says joy in the morning, joy at night, joy in the midday, we are to have joy. It doesn't mean we're to have happiness all the time. It doesn't mean we're always gonna like what happens to us, but God is with us and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And that is what the fruit of joy that the Holy Spirit gives us is. Do you have it? Unbelievable. Let's go to peace. So peace is interesting. Excuse me for a moment. Wow. Peace. Peace is contentment. Joy is gladness. Peace is contentment. Peace is contentment without conflict, contentment without anxiety, contentment without fear, contentment about worry about tomorrow. That's what peace is. And as I said last week about love, there's love to God, there's love to others, there's an understanding of how God loves us. And same with peace. There's peace with God. Can I read you a great verse? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You can have peace with God. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about, that we can have peace with God. So many people have said, God would never love me because of the sins I've committed. I've got all these problems and you're right, but you can have peace with God. And it doesn't come from what you do and it doesn't come from those full barns. What it comes from is faith. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You can have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, it says right here that you will rejoice. So joy and peace come together in your relationship to God through his son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. That is so important to understand. But also there's more to that. There's also having the peace of God. There's peace with God, but there's the peace of God. This is the part we talked about all summer long, Francois spoke on it, Matthew spoke on it, I spoke on it. This is the stuff where he says, be anxious for nothing, worry about nothing, fear not. Remember all those words we talked about? We did weeks and weeks of these sermons, and I'm thinking, why am I keep talking about this? Well, because it either brings peace or it causes you to move away from peace. Peace with God, the peace of God. And then the third one in this is God has called us to be peacemakers. You remember in that same sermon at the very beginning, we talked about it back, I think it was in June. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, the children of God. Remember in the Beatitudes, the peacemakers. You and I have an opportunity to be peacemakers. So there's peace with God, there's the peace of God, that's internally, And then there's peace with other people. Now, let me give some thoughts to this. How do you really practice this out? I give you a couple of questions you could ask yourself? Do you really forgive those who wronged you? Anybody want to raise their hand? Do you forgive those who have wronged you? Wow. Raise your hands if you do that okay. There's a lot of you who don't. And I'm not condemning you. This is not a condemnation sermon. This is a sermon on joy and peace. But if you cannot forgive someone, the same sermon that we spent all summer on says, how do you expect God to forgive you? There is a sense that peace comes from forgiveness. And people have done things to you that you go, They don't deserve it. And you're right, they don't deserve it. But it's not about them. When you forgive someone, it's really changing your heart. And people who have an unforgiving heart cannot have peace. I mean, they are just not at peace. I see strife. I see all kinds of problems. Let me give you a second one. Do you cling to the smallest slight against you? Slight meaning someone does a small thing. Or are you slow to anger? Proverbs says there's a glory to overlook an offense. There is a sense that we need to sometimes overlook things because it affects us too much. And a lot of the conversation I have with you all and with others is about that, that you're holding on to something I've talked to people that tell me a story about somebody offending them with such animation. I go, that must've happened yesterday. And they go, no, it was 20 years ago. You don't have peace if that's how you, you know. if you're struggling from something that happened yesterday, I totally get it. If you're struggling from something that happened 20 years ago, I don't get it. You gotta let it go. You've got to let it go. There's a lot of um, uh, discussion in the media nowadays because a lot of the, um, sadly, a lot of the, the killings in schools and the killings in malls and the killings in these heinous acts that have occurred, and now they've been occurring about 20 years, right? Well, some of those ones that occurred 20 years ago, those people are up for parole, okay? They're up for parole now. And now the conversation is not about them, but it's about the people and the parents and the siblings who survived and how they are dealing with what occurred 20 years ago. It's all in the news. I mean, I was was reading a bunch of the articles yesterday, just scrolling through these articles. And some forgave and some didn't and how it affects the family. It's an amazing thing. And then finally, do you regularly check in with people closest to you and really having a strong relationship with them? Important things about peace. Now, I wanna shift for a moment. We're talking about joy and we're talking about peace. I'm gonna invite my wife, Elizabeth, to come up and to share a story and share about this whole idea of joy and then ultimately about peace. Can we welcome her up here? Hi, sweetheart. And um, as she comes, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you that afterwards. Talk to us, sweetheart.
1: Hello, church family. For the past year and a half, I have been uh, working with an incredible team to revise and update uh, a story called Journey for the Heart that chronicles uh, the journey that God took our family on through our son's congenital heart disease and his heart transplant and his death at the age of 13. And I wrote this story to uh, share some things about him, but primarily to share that there is hope when life is unfair. In James's life, so much was stacked against him, and yet God wired him with an enormous capacity for joy. In almost every single photograph that we have of him, he's wearing a huge grin on his face, a huge happy smile, and his arm is locked around somebody that he loved. Our God allowed him to know great suffering and simultaneously gave him a heart that could experience and share great joy. And so he affected everybody that knew him for great good. The subtitle of my book is Hope When Life is Unfair. And I know in each of our lives there are circumstances and situations where life is truly unfair and life is not turning out the way that you thought it would or that it should. But in our story, I want you to realize that we found Jesus right there in the middle of the mess. He gave us hope, and I want to let you know that he is right there in your story as well. And he is the God that can be found and who walks with us and who loves us in spite of all the challenges and disappointments and difficulties that we have to face going through. This book is not a self-help book. This book points you to Jesus and to the power and the beauty of his word. I know you will see Jesus in the story in our life, but my desire is for you to see Jesus in your story and for you to realize that he's all about a journey for your heart. Here's an excerpt. The truth is, all his suffering only made James sweeter. He attacked life, whatever shape it came in. Passion poured from every nerve ending he possessed. It was as if he knew, even as a little boy, that life itself was a magical, miraculous, extraordinary gift, and he could not waste one moment on anything less than celebration. He laughed intensely and cheered for others at the top of his lungs. He played hard, studied with diligence, and somehow captured the meaning of why God had left him on earth. He rushed to the finish line, fully spent, every ounce given to the grand cause of bring glory to the Father, who had, on more occasions than he could possibly know, spared his life for some great task ahead. James lived life large. He lived life well. He flew down the track. He won the race. He arrived there first and went in ahead. Far too soon, it seemed, to us. He simply took his bumps with style and never drew attention to himself, never realized it was a big deal, that. His heart was not his own, he made it his own. He had more heart than most people ever dream of having. It pumped love and passion and joy into every moment James lived. He came to demonstrate that regardless of the bruises, the challenges, the hurdles, a person should run fast, grin cheerfully, play intensely, give all, reserve nothing for tomorrow, encourage everyone in their path, look out for the weak, and turn life into a fast-paced joyride, giving love extravagantly everywhere they happen to go. In the middle of his thirteenth year, the Savior beckoned to him, Come quickly, James. You've done your part. You've finished the job I sent you to perform. You've shown them what a life lived in love with me looks like. You have demonstrated that a struggle need never strangle joy, but rather can strengthen it until a harvest of beauty grows precisely from the soil of suffering. You lived a life so filled with me that wherever I sent you, whatever hospital housed you, doctor probed you, or nurse monitored you, or sibling played with you, or teammate heard you. They all knew you to be different because I crafted you for a different purpose. I created you to show anyone willing to discern that adversity never conquers the soul I fill with my spirit, that challenges knock off selfishness in hearts tuned into me, that pain produces power in the weakest containers, that joy is born in places full of sorrow, and that laughter is sweeter when mined in fields of tears. Show them that passion for me and for my word produces giants others see as little boys. I pray that the Lord will continue to remind each of us to know his joy right there where we are, the joy of his hope, his peace, regardless of what he's asking us to face. Thank you so much.
0: God is in the middle of your story. This is a piece of Our story, but it's not about our story. It's about God's story in each of us. Every one of us has a story. And God, if you have faith in him through his son, Jesus, is in your story. And if you don't, he's knocking at your door saying, let me in. I want to be a part of your story. And I believe that's how we can say there is joy, even when things are not always going our way. We're going to pause and just pray for a moment.